Curiosity, to me, is one of the key elements. If somebody is going overseas, this desire to learn and understand, as opposed to, I've got this figured out, that curiosity, I think, bridges with adaptability. Are those two things that say people who are curious and people who can adapt are going to be more likely to succeed than people who think they've got it all figured out and have a way of doing things, whether it works or not. It's my way and I got it. Welcome to International Business Today, where we discuss the most critical issues in international business with top academic experts and thought leaders. I'm Paula Kelajuri, a professor in the International Business and Strategy Group at Northeastern University's DeMore McKim School of Business, the sponsor of this podcast. Today, I am happy to be joined by Julian Dazel. Julian is a senior lecturer of management in the Darla Moore School of Business at University of South Carolina. Before becoming an academic, Julian had over 40 years of global leadership experience with Royal Dutch Shell. Julian is also the co-author of Talent Without Borders, Global Talent Acquisition for Competitive Advantage. Julian, welcome to International Business Today. Thank you. It's a delight to be here, Paula. I'm very excited at the opportunity to visit with you. Oh, it's just so wonderful to be able to talk to you. You have had over 40 years at Shell as a global leader. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Where did it start? Well, it started in a rather unorthodox way, to be honest. Uh, I, I dropped out of a teacher's training college um, trying to learn how to teach seven-year-olds, which I would tell you is the perfect training for dealing with executives. And I'm, I basically was looking for a job. Um, and I saw uh, through my careers officer, there was a job uh, for a sandwich course trainee, which we would call a co-op over in the States. And it was in operations. It was in distribution. So basically working with truck drivers um, and storage depots. And they put me through that for the first, um, first assignment. And then I was told, you know, I went to college for six months, came back. And they said, right, now you can choose one of these departments in head office. And I looked down this list of departments and they had things like road and rail equipment and um, leakage and loss control. And I thought, oh, my heavens, this, this is not for me. And then way down at the bottom, it said industrial relations and manpower and said, I, that's where I'd like to be. And they said, oh, no, 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 sorry, that, that's, that's sort of secret and it deals with unions and we can't put trainees in there. And I said, but it's on the list. Yeah, but we, we can't put trainees in there. I said, it's on the list. And they said, well, okay. I said, look, how about you just let me have an interview with the department? If they turn me down, I understand. So they agreed to that, and they went along um, and actually got accepted as a trainee there. And that started my passion for labor relations. And I spent some time in there. I then went back for a second assignment in there, moved out for about four years being a shift supervisor in a truck depot. And it was during a very turbulent period of labor relations in the UK, um, the, the 1970s we're talking about. And so the real skill wasn't spilling oil or figuring out where the trucks were supposed to be. It was getting people to work for eight hours without going on strike. And I seemed to have some knack for that. And so they said, how about doing this full time? So I moved into a couple of full time labor relations jobs. Um, and then the staff planning world said, look, you've never worked anywhere except in the trucking business. You've only ever worked in the UK and you've only ever done labor relations. And they sent me off to a small country called Brunei, which is on the island of Borneo. 
and said, you're going to do staff planning and recruitment uh, in Borneo. And I went, okay. And that's an upstream exploration and production. I went, okay. So I was basically learning you know, a new business, a new country, and a new skill set. And, and this was your first international job, right? This was your yeah. first international experience. Okay. Absolutely, yeah. And I was recruiting all over Southeast Asia. I mean, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore, the Philippines. And I realized just how woefully unprepared I was when I did my very first recruitment interview. And I looked at what the job specification was, and it was for a water buffalo breeder. And I'm thinking... Well, a water buffalo breeder now. Well, we had a, apparently, we had a farm that taught people how to breed water buffaloes, and they wanted the water buffalo breeder. And the Philippines is like the center of excellence for water buffalo breeders. So I did that, and I hadn't got a clue. I mean, what's the, what's the warm-up question? For a water buffalo breed. I mean, I had no clue. So I did that for about five years in and out and then moved down the coast. Great water buffalo breeder? I had the, the, I found the best water buffalo breeder. I can't remember his name now, but if I, I could make one up, but it would be it would be making it up. But yeah, we found a great water. I mean, I interviewed for air traffic controllers because we had um, actually had a an airport where we ran our helicopters out of. And one chap came in and he did his interview for the air traffic controller job. And then he said, I, I hate to bother you. Could I do the interview that I've got tomorrow? I said, another interview tomorrow? He said, yeah, you're interviewing me for a civil engineer's job tomorrow. And apparently he had a civil engineering degree and an air traffic controller's license. And I thought, this is job sharing. I mean, he could be steering the helicopters onto the pad and fixing the runway in his spare time. And he said, great job. So you get these strange things that you come across. Um, moved down the coast to the Malaysian LNG project for a couple of years, then had one of those conversations that you don't want to have, where I was told I was going to go to uh, Kuala Lumpur. And I said, actually, I'm fine. I've had seven years out in the Far East. I've loved it, but I want to get back to Europe. And um, I've really enjoyed my time. He said, well, here's the deal. Um there's a bit of interracial tension there between the Malays and the Chinese. This job negotiates with the government about work visas and stuff like that. Um, and the individual has to speak at least some Malay. Julian, you're in a list of one because you're not Chinese or Malay and you do speak Malay. And um, uh, he said, so if you, if you want a paycheck next month, it's in Kuala Lumpur. If you don't, that's entirely up to you. And it was a very persuasive argument. And I loved it. I had three wonderful, wonderful years in Kuala Lumpur where I was starting to become more regional in the in terms of, of, uh, of influence and expertise. Then moved to the States. Um, actually, I resigned from the Shell Group and joined Shell Oil. And I worked in compensation a little bit, did some more staff planning for two different jobs. Then I moved to New Orleans, which was my first really big managerial role. Julian, would you, did you move to Texas? I moved to Texas in 1988. Wow. So that's, and then spent 10 years there, then moved to New Orleans, looking after the Gulf of Mexico offshore operations, which was a tremendous experience. I loved it. Um, had another conversation, which was, would you please come back to Houston on Monday? Because the VP of HR for trading has resigned and we really need you to come back. So I literally, over the Thanksgiving weekend, moved into the trading role. Um, next door to Enron, you may have heard of them. I lost 40% of my traders in a year to Enron. Uh, I learned 
the fallacy of talking to a 23-year-old about long-term prospects and pensions when they've got a million-dollar sign-on bonus in their hands. Figured that one out pretty quickly. Um, and then that became a global role. So they actually sort of expanded the role to look after the operations in London and Singapore and Dubai and, and uh, Calgary, which was fun leading a distributed organization where my boss and all the rest of the leadership team were in London and I was in Houston. So it was an interesting dynamic and one I thoroughly enjoyed. Back to Singapore to look after Asia Pacific Middle East for the downstream. So basically 11 time zones, Saudi Arabia to Fiji, uh, up to China and down to New Zealand. So budgeting a lot of time um, sleeping on planes. Then to head up a global business for supply distribution. And then finally coming back to the States where I looked after North America for the downstream. So that's uh, marketing, retail, trading, um, supply, distribution, et cetera. Um, and then that sort of morphed as we became more geographically oriented to the America, but just for, I mean, just for America, but all of the businesses. And then somebody else took over to took over Canada. So that was it. Um, so it was 43 years. I, I don't look back on a single day and think, wasn't that a great experience? I loved it. I had a fabulous experience. Wonderful bosses, great colleagues. And um, I was reminded very quickly of the story. I, I was talking to another company about two years away from when I was going to retire who had approached me. And I asked my, I came back and talked to my wife. And she said, how was the conversation? I was really good. It's a very, very attractive offer. And she said, okay, I'm going to support you once you've answered four questions. Do you like and respect your boss currently? I said, absolutely, the best boss I've ever had. Do you like and respect your global colleagues on the global leadership team? Yeah, I mean, some of them I've known for 30 or 40 years. Do you like and respect the team that you lead? And I said, yeah. I mean, I you know, picked most of them, and the ones that were there when I came back, you know, I, I was happy to have stay. And do you like the work you're doing? Do you find it challenging? I said, we've got the union negotiations coming up. We've got this reorganization. We're buying this. She said, so you want to go work for somebody you don't know alongside people you don't know, leading people you don't know in a business you're not quite sure why they want you. And I thought, yeah, that was real. But to me, it was a really good bellwether about what people should be looking for in a job is the boss, their colleagues, and who they lead. And the nature of the work is an interesting purpose. So it served my purpose. And I, and I didn't, I'd never considered moving anywhere else after that. I mean, I'd been there for 40 years by that stage. So I thought I might stay for a while. But, um, it's interesting how, how people can give you these questions that make you realize what's important without actually saying, look, this is what's important. Your wife is very, very wise, and you, you've had such a, such a fantastic career. Julian, you, tell us a little more about um, some of the challenges of being a global leader. You have worked all over Asia. You've worked in the U.S., Europe. Like where, what were some of those big challenges? And how do you overcome them? Well, I think, uh, let me break it down into, into two parts. One is around the actual operational challenge. So there is an element of needing to understand the mechanics of different countries, needing to understand, at least at some level, the laws and the culture of 
some of the places you're going to go into. So there is some element of that. And of course, for that, you often rely on the people in the country. I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert on the Dutch um, staff committee system or the German um, you know, staff councils and stuff like that. So there's some element of relying on local expertise. But the softer side of it is to put away the notion that how you see the world is the only way to see it and that is necessarily the right way to see it in the context and in the country. And that's not an easy lesson to learn. If you've been successful somewhere and you believe you've sort of got the, 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 the expertise to aid and abet, to suddenly find out that you're flat out wrong and find it out pretty dramatically. Um, I, I'll give you an example, if I may. In, in Brunei, we did not have a university at that time. They, they do now, but, but we did not have a university. And yet we needed technical graduates. And so the way that we solved that was by recruiting high school students, um, helping them get entrance to universities in Australia or Canada or the UK, slightly less the US because it, it, the education systems didn't quite gel, but you know, elsewhere in the world. And we would, once they got there, we would pay for their books, we'd pay for their tuition, we would give them an allowance for room and board, we would fly them back to Brunei for uh, twice a year for holidays, et cetera, et cetera. And then because we'd poured all these money into them, all this money into them, we would require them to sign a contract that basically said, you know, once you've got your degree, you'll come back and work for us. And my argument with a, I would say, a very westernized leadership team there was to argue that this was immoral. I said, basically, these are the children of government civil servants or of rice farmers or of small shopkeepers. There are only two employers in Brunei, the government and Shell, of any substance at that time. So how can they possibly not come for us and pay the contract back? They haven't got any money. I mean, where are they going to get money to pay off and you make up your number for whatever an overseas degree costs? But a lot of money. This is just unethical. And I argued that with the leadership team and they saw the wisdom of my thoughts and we stopped doing it. And I went away for vacation and I came back a couple of three weeks later and found that they'd reversed that decision and they were going to make them sign the contracts again. And I was absolutely furious. And I went and saw my boss and I said, Robert, this is, this is wrong. And he said, look, we've got a little gathering of the students before they go off and you know, why don't you come down and, and we'll have a conversation. So we went down there and during the course of the conversation, this came up. And one of the students said, we're so glad you changed your mind on that. But I said, well, I don't understand. Tell me why. And he said, well, when you made us sign the contracts, we realized how much you wanted us to work for you. When you basically said, look, go off, get a degree, come back if you want to work for us, whatever, we realized that you weren't particularly didn't care whether we work for you or not. I had seen it as a constraint and they'd seen it as a commitment. And I was just wrong. And I, so I think it's things like that where you realize that looking at something only through your eyes and your cultural perspective and background can really lead you down the wrong path totally innocently. I mean, I genuinely believe my motives were pure, but my assessment and my logic was impure. Well, it makes such sense because what we know about great culturally agile leaders like you 
that they have certain certain competencies and one of them is the show of humility the ability to say look at i don't know how to do it here i'm really good at employee relations hr training development whatever that strategy talent strategy but i don't know how to do that here work with me right Uh, or that idea of perspective taking you know the idea that that they saw that contract as a a show of commitment a show of connection and engagement i would never have seen that there's a i don't know if you have you ever done escapology room escape rooms no no uh well it's one of the clues in one of the rooms basically you've got a series of black and white tiles and you've got to figure out there's a clue hidden in those tiles and you can sit and look at it from you know, one angle, and you can sit and look at it. It's just a set of black and white tiles until you walk around to the other side and look back, and it actually spells you know whatever the next move is. And it's just and that's one of the less the lessons I think in culture is don't stay on your side of the cultural map. Walk around to the other side and see it from the other perspective. And I you know, that escapology thing literally only came to me this past week where I did an exercise like that with a leadership course I was teaching. And it just, wow, that's it. You've just got to step to the other side of the room and look at it from a different angle. It's, per, it's perspective taking, right? Uh, it's another another yeah. one of those critical competencies we found in the cultural agility work. So was curiosity, that ability to just yeah. want to see, like just curious what's on the other side of that table or what's what else is happening right. here. I think the right. other real key, you know, such important issue that you described for global leaders is the one of saying, you know what? Um, there are situations where, like the laws, you need to understand the laws of the country. It will be right. non-negotiable. That's one situation. There are circumstances where we'll need to adapt. Like, hey, there's no, yeah. there, we need educated individuals here. There's not one here. We need to adapt to a context that, that will make that possible. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a third situation and that is you know that idea of cultural integration saying look it's not gonna be my my way or your way we're gonna have to figure out something that that works for both of us and that these great global leaders do all three of those certainly as you just described i mean i think yeah i have a picture for that and i'll I'll describe it but i'll describe a circumstance which i think fits that for um in malaysia in the late 80s um, there was a movement to try and get a lot more rigorous about stamping out the um, people trying to convert away from Islam. And it wasn't illegal to do that, but it was illegal to proselytize, to persuade others to do it. And um, one of the people I was on the Shell bowling team with um, suddenly just disappeared. And um, you know, after three or four days, we found out that he'd been taken by the religious police and was in jail somewhere in the jungles of Malaysia. We tried to make representations to find out you know, whether he could be released, etc. to absolutely to no avail at all. Um, and after about two or three months, maybe, um, I went along to the country CEO, who was an expat, um, who I admired tremendously. And I said, you know, Mark, I have a question. You know, how long are we going to continue paying Heal me, because he was fully aware of the situation. And he said, Julian, what does the company policy manual say about people who are imprisoned um, and how we deal with them? I said, well, it says they will be subject to termination because it was written with the assumption that it was for a criminal act of some sort as we would define it. Okay. 
But it doesn't say we will. It just says we'll be subject. Yes. And what does the law say? I said, actually, I'll check on it finally, but I'm pretty sure the law is silent on it. He said, okay. So there's your answer. Um, I'm sorry. (laughs) What's the answer? We'll pay him as long as it takes. And he was kept in jail for nearly nine months, and he was paid for every day. And the lesson to me was that this CEO had a absolutely rigid spine, which were the moral values and his moral compass. But he was like a chameleon with a spine in that he could adapt to the local circumstances. And I think that picture is, is you know, captures it for me. You do have to blend in like a chameleon does with the circumstances surrounding you, but not at the expense of your moral values or what you believe to the institutional moral values, what your company stands for. So that would be, I I absolutely agree with you, Paula. It's not either or, it's and. Right, it's a beautiful example of what we found in the research. You know, hey, look at great global leaders are able to pull the lever on, you know, that, that stiff spine that, or the chameleon, or sometimes it's that, that stiff-spined chameleon working with other, you know, I guess in this case, keep yeah. going with that metaphor would be animals <laughs> in a yeah. way that really works for, for the whole group. But, but it was, uh, yeah. it's a beautiful visual for that. So, Jillian, when you're in country as a leader, especially when you're newly yeah. arrived to a country as a leader, how do you learn? How do you learn the subtleties of the country? How do you learn how to be a leader in that country? I, I think there are sort of three steps, if you like, observe, assess, and act. So the observe is, um, obviously, you may have to start making decisions early on, depending on your level in the organization. But take some time to watch how people work, to watch how people interact with each other, to get a sense of, Silly things that, um, as Americans, we sometimes think about, you know, noise. America is very comfortable with loud noises and is speaking loud. And when, you know, they go to England and they sit on the underground in the tube, you know, the Brits are sitting there looking at their newspapers. And if you suddenly, you know, if, if you listen for one voice above all other voices, it's a good chance it'll be an American one. Um, so that would be an observation. So observe the things that are easily observable, like pace like noise level, like um, greeting. I mean, do some research before you get there. But how do people greet? What what are the norms around physical distance? Um, what are the norms about dress and things like that? So I think a little bit about it is observing how people interact and starting to figure out how you moderate your own personal interaction style, the chameleon bit, where, to interact with the local, local culture. Then to to figure out which bits of that are really important and which bits are actually that, that that if you do it in a slightly different way, it's adding to a tapestry as opposed to clashing with it. It becomes part of a different weave within, within a tapestry, a different colored thread, um, and figure out how you can do a little bit of both. And you sometimes you will you'll put your foot in it. Um, but if I think if people see you as being well-intentioned, they will stop and say, might want to think about how you say that. Or one thing, or they pick t- just very quietly. It's difficult in a culture with a very high power distance context to say something critical to a boss. So how do you create that advancement? And then act upon all that. Um, it, 
it is, I don't think it's an immediate. I don't think you can research stuff, read papers, listen to lectures from cultural experts and stuff like that, and then go in and then, and then expect to be it to be the norm. Um, in fact, I think you know one of the most difficult transitions for me, and I've heard this from other people, actually isn't the expatriation place, it's the repatriation. Right? Because you go back and you, you expect yeah, you expect it to be the same. Meanwhile, you've been away for a while and the world they haven't sort of kept a little hole open for Julian. Oh, there he's been absent. Oh, Julian, come back. This is your hole. We've kept it. Doesn't work like that. They've formed and regrouped in a way that and they've had experiences that you have not and had. And you're you're um, you're different as a person. You've been socialized by the context yes. you've been in for however long you've been there. Yeah. You're a little bit yeah. changed, so your interaction with that new fabric is different. And and you can make you can make very bad impressions. I mean, the, you know, I remember the very first time I went back after a year on my first vacation, and my mother said, "You know, where did you go on your holidays or vacations?" I said, "Well, you know, we stopped off in Thailand, and you know where the King and I was filmed." And she said, "Oh yes, sir. Oh, we went and visited that temple, and we went skiing in, in Switzerland, and then came back." And then she looked at me and she said, "And and you know, Mrs. Jones's knee is still bothering her." Pardon? And it was like it was it was coming bringing me back to her world, and it, with a family who you, you know who love you. That's one level of it. But then when you're down at the local rugby club or the, wherever, you've, wherever you've associated with, well, where'd you go on your holidays? I went to Fiji and did this and all the rest of it. And, oh, look at you. So you can create a really bad impression where all you've done is just answer the question, but from your new perspective, and you have changed as a result of that. Yeah, that's why internationalists tend to find the greatest ease with other people who are internationalists for that exact reason. Absolutely. I think for me, I know I... I just say, oh, you know, same old, same old, you know, what, have you, what are you up to? I'm just like, sometimes I don't even bother um, for that reason, right. because it's, it's a different context. It's a different context. Yeah, like you, we just went for a beach and, you know. <laughs> you know, a little sunshine, a little wave. A little sunshine, a little beach. Yeah. So, you know, Jillian, I want to go back to, um, I think you had, you know, observe, assess, and act, because it's, what's really beautiful yeah. about that is it sort of speaks to what we know in cultural agility to be so important. And that is really building out that awareness. And like you're saying, some of that awareness is good to have going in. So the psychologist of me has to say, you know, the idea that you'll then see what could potentially be different if you're aware that it might be. But most of it happens in real time. Most of it happens in real time through social modeling, observing, someone saying, you know, Jillian, you could be a little bit better at that, at giving yeah. this presentation by doing it this way or that way. Um, so much of what we know about great global professionals is that they're, they're great at getting the environment, people within the environment, to help yeah. them learn it. Um, and it sounds like you've had some really wonderful cultural coaches, mentors in context that were very hierarchical. People were willing to say, and share and help yeah. you be effective. I had, I, yeah, one one particular occurs to me. He was a he was on a sort of hierarchical peer level as me, but he was going to be sent off to London to get trained in the dark arts of staff planning and, and talent development, <clears throat> and then come back and be my successor. So he was head of labour relations and was to come back as the head of talent. And um, after about a week after this is announced, and I 
after about a week or so. So I said, you know, Ali, I said, have you thought about where you're going to live in London? He said, yeah, I've had a look at a few places. Oh, great. But well, let me know if you need any help. Okay, I'll do that. And then a couple of weeks later, I said, so um, have you narrowed it down? Yeah, yeah, we've probably three or four areas. Okay, well, let me know if you need any help. Yeah. And then another weekend, I said, Alias, um, I, so I don't want to bother you, but you know, you've about three weeks you're supposed to be in London. Um, you need to be narrowing down the, the places you're going to live. And he said, hmm. I said, I'll ask you a question. Do, do you, are you excited about going to London? And he said, no, I really don't want to go. And I went, well, why don't you tell Hassan, who was our mutual boss? He'll understand. I mean, he's a great guy. And he said, no, I can't do that. But you've worked with him for 20 years. I mean, you're, you're friends. And he said, I can't do that. He will know that I don't want to go. And about a week later, he came back and he said, Ali, uh, Hassan asked me the day if I didn't want to go. So I said, great, but wouldn't it have been more efficient to have just told him that straight up. And he said, possibly, but not as effective. It's the way that we communicate as Malays. And it was, you know, it would have, he had a very clear picture about the culture of which he was an integral part. And his boss was the same. And this idea of my view of this being inefficient and his view, the goal is to be effective, not efficient. And that mattered more to respect the culture, respect the power distance, and deal with it, knowing that his having confidence that his boss would pick up on it. So I, I think he was, he was he was a great mentor. He didn't say stupid thing to say, Julian. He said, yeah, <laughs> and he also, he may not he also be modeled that that high context speech. Again, it's just such a beautiful mm -hmm. example of both sides of the equation for culturally agile leaders. It's that. All that awareness yes. building that happens a little bit before, a lot during, through the relationships that you build. But right. it's all those competencies that you have as a leader to, to learn from the environments that you're in. And I know you were talking earlier about you know, sort of cultural integration and the research around that. Um, and I, I do think there's a lot you can learn from reading and, and um, observing and you know, listening to classes and stuff like that. But you know, curiosity to me is one of the key elements. So somebody who's going overseas, this desire to learn and understand, as opposed to I've got this figured out, that curiosity, I think, bridges with adaptability. Are those two things that say people who are curious and people who can adapt are going to be more likely to succeed than people who think they've got it all figured out and have a way of doing things, whether it works or not. It's my way, and I got it. Um, I do, does the research bear it that does, out? It does. It does. You're naming almost all of the key competencies. So tolerance of ambiguity, that ability to, to, to go from the UK to Brunei going, sure, why not, right? That ability to, to <laughs> suspend for a while in situations that you really cannot interpret. You would say observe, but that's that, you know, one, tolerance of ambiguity. Curiosity, exactly as you described, that just kind of keep either searching for yourself, asking lots of questions, just trying to get to truth and, and better understand the situation. Resilience, you yeah. mentioned that, you know, they, you know, sometimes you're just going to fall on your face. That's it, It's going to happen. It's going to happen more. The more we work internationally, it's just very natural. Relationship yeah. building, 
um, certainly perspective taking. You know, they're they're all and humility. They're all critical. All six of them keep coming out in the literature uh, and certainly in practice. Good. I'm glad. I, I mean, I do, I do. I mean, I think the 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 other one I build in there, and you've obviously got this in in large quantity. Is a sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, you've got to be willing to laugh because if you don't, you cry. You just say, I can't believe I did that. Right, it's embedded in resilience. If you can't laugh at yourself, do not do global work because you're going to do things. I mean, we, you and I could just do a whole set, a whole episode just on the funny things that we've done globally. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, we should. Globally. <laughs> But, but I'm not sure if it would be fit for public for public provocation. Right. right. <laughs> Julian, thank you. Did I really do that? That was so silly. This is this is just so wonderful. I know you've got an interesting story just as an academic. So you're a professor in South, University of South Carolina, a business school professor. But it wasn't always that way, right? So so just a little no. bit of your educational background and then some advice and we'll, we'll, we'll end it there. Well, I think... You know, I alluded to it earlier on, which was I joined, I decided I wanted to go off to a, a teacher's training college in England. So uh, my father had been a teacher. Um, I don't know, it seemed like a default option. And so I, and my majors at high school were French and Spanish. So I was going to be a modern languages teacher. That was my, my goal. After 12 weeks, I realized this was not going to be one I'd be good at. I, I didn't see myself in a classroom teaching unruly seven to 11 year olds. It just didn't seem to be what I wanted to do. I had no clue what I was going to do. I was put in touch with the, with Shelmex and BP and got interviewed. Um, they put me onto a, a, a sandwich course, which would have led me to having a degree. Um, and after two years, I was enjoying labor relations so much that I said, you know, um, I don't want to do this. Let me just let me just carry on doing labor relations. I don't want to carry on with a degree. So I dropped out twice. And uh, I was visiting the U.S. with my wife, who was an American, went to her old college, and they had a thing called Program for Experienced Learners. So this you're talking now, this is 1979 or 80. So this is a long time before the internet and stuff like that. So it was basically, you know, you had a paper, you send it off, it got graded, it came back three weeks later through pigeon mail, etc. Um, it took me about five years to finish that, but I managed to get through it. And I, it was a goal to get a degree. And I didn't think of any more about, you know, getting master's degrees until very much later on towards the last three years of my time in Shell. Um, and we were, my wife was researching master's programs for my son uh, in human resources or related subjects. And she found this uh, online degree at Texas A&M. And she said, why did you do that? And I said, why would I? I mean, she said, because I think you'd find it enjoyable. And it was, a, my wife knows me, you know, back when she knows the sorts of things to say. And so I was doing this master's degree and I had a possibility of thinking about maybe teaching at a, a junior college or a technical college um, when I retired, but it was a vague notion in the back of my mind. Um, but what I had done quite a few of were guest lectures at universities from which we recruited HR professionals. So I'd been to Illinois and Michigan State and Cornell and, and uh, Texas A&M and a few others and the University of South Carolina. And I was having lunch with, with the department chair in management 
And he said, what are you doing in your spare time? I said, well, you know, talking to somebody who works 70, 80 hours a week, so spare time is, you know, relative. It's relative. Um, I said, but I'm, you know, teach a couple of Bible studies a week and I'm doing this master's degree. And he said, why? I said, what, the Bible studies? No, the master's degree. I said, I don't know. I thought it might be, you know, maybe teach when I retired. And he said, why don't you come and teach here? I said, Brian, I've, I haven't got a master's degree yet, let alone a PhD. And he just looked at me and smiled and he said, but you might have learned something in 43 years that the students could benefit from. And it was, it was a, you know, when I went to my first lecture just before it, he said, you're okay, ready? I said, a bit nervous. He said, just remember you know more than they do. And it was, it was the most affirming and supportive comment because it genuinely was, I'm not going to sit over your shoulder and look at lesson plans or stuff like that. I just want you to share what you've learned because we got a bunch of academics around us who can teach them about the research around staff planning or compensation or labor relations or uh, analytics or whatever it is. But they don't have the background that you do in terms of a practical application of that. And it was, as I say, it was very gentle and very supportive. Um, and, it, you know, later on, um, Rob Ployhart, um, who's a department um, colleague of mine, one of the sort of world experts on staffing and, and um, assessment systems. And he approached me and said, I'm writing a book with a professor from the University of Texas at Dallas. Would you be interested in being the third author? And that was one of the most affirming and enjoyable experiences I've ever had because Rob would lay out some theory or framework or construct. And I'd say, yeah, let me give you an example of how that plays out in practice. And we'd scramble that down. And we actually um, developed a human being called Roger Wells. And it's, sort of, it's an asynchronous autobiography in many ways. It's got lots of silly things that I did and mistakes that I made and struggles that I had during the time. We've just you know, reconfigured a little bit. But then occasionally I would say, well, A, B, and C, and this happened. And Rob would say, oh, well, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the Burns-Hansen construct. And I went, oh, okay. But he knew why things happened and I would know what happened. And within the three of it, we just melded together. So the book's called Talent Without Borders. And... Um, it, I had a, I always wanted to write a book, but I didn't realize just how much fun it could be. I don't think I would choose to write one of my own because it wouldn't be as much fun. It wouldn't be as good either, but it certainly would. We, we did a lot of laughing. We did a lot of laughing. Um, so I think that's, that was how I ended up going from, you know, practitioner to quasi-academic. Um, and I have to remind myself you are a quasi-academic and not try and out-academic the academics. Uh, and they don't let me. I mean, they, they, keep, me, they keep me humble. Well, we're not all that bad. <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful story and certainly a motivational one that it doesn't matter where you, where you start. You just have to keep navigating through that career journey to find your ideal ideal career. And we're certainly going to put a link to your book in the, the show notes. Julian, I want to end... Um, the episode with just a solid piece of advice from you to our listeners who are international business professionals, global leaders, what piece of advice would you have for them on how to be successful? Well, if they're going to work internationally, if they're going to be expatriates, be crystal clear on why they're going. 
um, and I called the, you know, these are the three C's, cash, culture, career. You know, if you're going to make basically with the, with the main objective of earning a boatload of cash, you know, you will work in some parts of the world that are not the most attractive. You may be in parts of the world which are dangerous um, or where food is not the type that you eat normally or whatever it may be. And that's a perfectly legitimate goal, but just realize that's a goal. The next thing you may be going because you're interested in how other parts of the world see the world, what the, how their culture is different, how, um, how they work is different, how they pray and how they live and how they relate to family and society is all different. And it's fascinating. Um, but you may not actually you know, earn all that much money by doing that. But it's a goal in itself. And then the last one is career. Sometimes, you know, there are companies who will say, unless you have worked overseas, you are not going to compete for global leadership roles. So it isn't important only to have one, but just realize that at the moment where you're trying to figure out why you are in a place and you're struggling and you're making the normal cultural mistakes that people make, um, just realize that's why you're there, is to make those mistakes and learn and enjoy. And maybe your career advances, maybe you earn a lot of money. Uh, now, for me, the money was part of it. But for me, by far, the biggest C was culture. That's why I wanted to work overseas. I, I realized, um, you know, as I mentioned to you, my high school majors were French and Spanish. Um, I never worked in a French or Spanish speaking country. I worked in three Malay-speaking countries and was learning Dutch to work in another non-Spanish or French-speaking country. So the staff planning system didn't work on that. But I do think, A, being crystal clear about that is really, really important. And then the second thing is to accept that people can get to a different – they can have different ways of getting to the same goal. They can have objectives that may be hidden and yet can be um, – can fit with yours. And I'll finish with a, a story along those lines, if I may. Um, I was early on in my time in Singapore, and my assistant came in and said, you need to leave the office for your driving uh, test at five o'clock this afternoon. And I went, okay, fine. So at about, you know, quarter of the, you know, half past four or so, I packed things up, went along to the driving office, and they checked me and saw my passport and said, go upstairs, it's in room X, Y, Z. And I get in there, and it's that's three quarters empty. Um, and I sit down there and they said, okay, we will come around and check your credentials, um, but start the test now. So we started the test and I was uh, three quarters of the way through it when they eventually got to me. So this is the, 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 the written exam. And so he looked at me and he said, yes, you are, Mr. Dalzell. He said, oh, but your test is at six o'clock. She had said, you need to leave the office for your driving test at five o'clock. She meant leave at five o'clock for a six o'clock test. I thought she meant leave the office to get there for five. So I said, well, you know, the room's three quarters, five. I'll just carry on now then, shall I? Because he said, no, no. I said, but, but, um, he said, you're six o'clock's when you're supposed to be here. And I thought, okay, maybe what they do is they collect up the papers and, and I said, well, just, you know, put my papers in with all the five o'clock ones. I can't do that. So then the thought occurs to me, um, maybe there's a different set of questions at six o'clock. I wrote a different set of questions at six o'clock. Oh no. So what do you want me to do now? Leave. And I said, well, how long is it going to take before I can get another appointment? 
come back at six. So I left. I looked up all the answers of the questions. I had no clue, like how many people you've got in the back of a truck when it's going 28 miles an hour or something. And I come back in, and the same person checked my credentials again. I was the only expat in the room. It was not like I was not noticeable. And walked and ended then walked out. His objective was to ensure the rules were followed. My objective was to get a driving license. Neither one of us cared anything about if I knew the rules of the road in Singapore. So it's my simple, it's my simple example of try and find out what people's objectives are and see if you can find a common path rather than necessarily looking for a common objective because they may or may not exist. But if you agree, can agree on a set of actions that can get you their goal and your goal, you're good to go. So I just I think it's one of those simple things that it's easy to forget that if you look for not only the path but the motive, you can achieve a lot more rather than saying it has to be this motive, it has to be this path. Figure out where the subtleties lie, become the chameleon with the spine. So that's such a beautiful piece of advice, Julian, is certainly understanding individual motivations and that you know, there's room for everyone, right? Julian, yeah, thank you absolutely. so much for being with us on International Business Today. It was great having you. Welcome. Thank you so much, Paula. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for today's episode of International Business Today. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your network. As always, we'd love to hear from you. 